Welcome to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. In this program, you'll hear fascinating stories from science, technology, finance, and the arts. Learn how dynamic individuals created their paths to success and the wealth intersections that occurred. It's where you might just find the answers on how you can pursue your passion while creating the necessary foundation to build personal wealth. And now, here is Megan Gorman. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Wealth Intersection. I'm Megan Gorman, and I'm thrilled to have you listening. In launching the show, I thought it would be good to give a little bit of background. Ever since I was young, I was fascinated in learning about different people and their life stories. And in launching my career 17 years ago, I was really fortunate to work with high net worth individuals in the personal finance space. But the thing I found most interesting about them were their stories. It was where their passion, their smarts, their drive intersected with wealth. And I found that in those stories and in those intersections, I learned more about personal finance than I did anywhere else. And so over the next couple of months, I invite you to join me as we explore these stories on the show, whether they're in the world of fitness, AI, cannabis, entertainment, and learn about these intersections. Now, for this first episode, it seems appropriate that we talk about the foundation of finance or financial literacy and how it is in the United States today. While wealth building is possible for a segment of Americans, it's really not possible for all Americans. In fact, most of us are struggling. And if you think about the definition of financial literacy, it means the ability to make informed financial choices regarding savings, investing, borrowing, and other financial matters. And what's really sort of disturbing is that the U.S., has been ranked 14th in the world when measuring the proportion of adults in the country who are financially literate. In fact, we are lagging Europe by double digits in financial literacy. But to some degree, these results aren't really a surprise when you think about the fact that most of us are financially stressed and that most of us feel that we probably won't do as well as the generation before us. That's why I'm excited that our first guest is Dr. Billy Hensley, President and CEO of the National Endowment for Financial Education. Prior to his current role, he spent eight years here at NEFI, serving as the Senior Director of Education, overseeing grants and and the research department, including management of several consumer education programs, collegiate initiatives, and e-learning and web strategy. He has a distinguished career working in educational philanthropy and higher education administration in Colorado, Ohio, and his home state of Kentucky, with a focus on financial education, college access, and teacher professional development. He's on the board of the Jumpstart Coalition for Personal Financial Literacy, where he chairs the Education Committee. You may also have seen him on on CNBC, where he is a regular contributor and on the CNBC Financial Wellness Advisory Council. Dr. Billy Hensley, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thrilled that you're here. It's a gorgeous day in Denver today. And I think a really good place for us to start is, in terms of financial literacy, is the United States in a crisis? (laughs) That's a heavy question. Um, There's a lot of problems, uh, but I'm hopeful because there are a lot of organizations like ours trying to help overcome the issues. Uh, Teachers are starting in the classroom and we have thoughtful philanthropy behind this. So I am hopeful, but yes, it is an issue. Uh, Everything from literacy, being able to like know and understand the concepts, all the way to the retirement saving crisis that we're facing. So, So, you know, from your point of view as an academic and an expert, What is a financially literate person? A person who understands the concepts of personal finance and uh, is able to apply those. Now, that lends us into the the fringes of financial capability because you can know a lot. But if you're not able to actually apply those things based on your economic circumstance or, or what's going on in your personal life, 
you know, that, that limits it, but being able to know the topic and understand the topic. Okay. So, so I guess when you look at the history of the United States, has financial literacy always been a problem or has the game, has the players stayed the same, but the game has gotten more complex? Uh, it's, it's, yes, it's both of those things. I mean, we, I have textbooks in my office uh, that are, that have the copyright of 1917 that, and there are several uh, pages of understanding and learning about money management as part of civics, social studies, and math. So it's, it's, it's been around for many years in public education, in public K-12 education, I should say. Uh, but in the last probably 30 to 40 years, our financial decision-making landscape has uh, gotten extremely complicated. There are a lot more products available. Uh, we have access to riskier investing uh, opportunities as a layperson. Not only, you know, for many years, access to these things were for sort of the elite, those who, the top 1% of people who understood investment strategy. Now, millions of Americans have access to some of these products and everything from complicated mortgage structures to uh, investing within their workplace to being able to play the stock market online at home in your pajamas watching Game of Thrones reruns. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. I can totally see it. I think, though, when you think about financial products, obviously they're part of the problem. But if you and I were sitting here 50 years ago, right, more than likely the two of us would have faith that our employers would provide us with a pension, right? right? So as we've moved as a society away from a pension society where you worked 30 years at a company, you collected your pension, supplemented by Social Security, to one where all of a sudden the, the onus has shifted, right? All of a sudden we're all responsible and we're supposed to be saving in our 401ks or our 403bs. We're supposed to be you know, funding IRAs and yet getting our kids fund, funded for college, you know, it, it almost seems like it's been a, a social change uh, that has been negative for the American public in losing pensions. Yes. I mean, a, a major part of the financial uh, retirement saving vehicle has has shifted from the employer to the individual. Yep. Uh, a friend of mine in our field, uh, she's an economist, a well-known research economist, uh, Anna Lusardi, says that we are all now asked to be our own CFO. And, you know, we, we all managed our own household finances before, but you also have to understand the day-to-day decisions you make in your financial life, as well as what does it take to live 30 or 40 years financially in retirement? Right. You know, we're living longer. Um, if you're retiring in your early to mid-60s, there's a high probability that women especially, but also men, are going to live into their 90s. So you're going to need enough money to live on almost as many years as you worked. That has also changed significantly because when the average person was retiring in their late 50s and early 60s, you know, when you and I were kids, they didn't live as long. And there were more um, uh, structured, defined retirement benefits. Uh, mortgages were pretty straightforward and vanilla. You know, you, you had so much to pay down and this was it. There was no there was no fluctuation necessarily. And, and so we have gotten a lot more complicated. But but you're right, the shift from the defined benefit to the defined contribution has been significant. We're down to around, I think the last statistic I saw was something like 13 or 15 percent of workers have access to a defined benefit. Wow. Pension. So Wow. And and just because they have access to it doesn't mean they make the right decisions with it. Right. Or that it's enough. I mean, that's the other piece of this as well. You know, to be able to continue to provide a defined benefit, a lot of employers have pulled back the amount that's being offered. This we may see the same thing with Social Security. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't believe Social Security is going to go bankrupt, but the amount uh, to cover retirement will have to pull back at some point. So it's the same thing. You 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 have less and you live longer. 
in retirement. So if you think about financial education today, a lot of it is obviously the finance part of it. Sure. But it's an understanding of history. Yes. And it's an understanding of longevity. It is. And it's, you know, when you think about, when I think about my my aunts and uncles, my great aunts and uncles who left Kentucky and moved to Ohio and Indiana to work at GM and Chrysler, who retired at 57 or 58 and had a pension uh, and their spouse had that pension until they retired. So, you know, you think you see that as a kid growing up and it, it, the landscape is dramatically different now uh, to think about what it's going to take and how long you have to save to be able to offset not only the disappearance of defined benefits, but to be able to um, stretch that into your 90s, potentially. Right. So it's clear there's an issue, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, to, to get the American public to actually address it, because one thing we're horrible about is actually talking about money. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, I, you know, my, my running joke about this is that when I was a kid, there were three things you didn't talk about. Religion, politics, and money. We can't talk about the other two enough. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but we still won't talk about money. Um, and, and even amongst my peer group, we're, there's not, there was never a discussion around, uh, hey, well, how, do you, how do you consider your, your employee, uh, your employer benefits? What did you guys do? Uh, you know, should you, did you do the 3% match? And none of us ever talked about that because there, it was just a taboo topic. And, you know, what I think is hopeful about financial education is that we're trying to demystify this topic okay. for young people so that the whole, there's a whole generation of people growing up not trying to necessarily um, ask specific questions maybe about what someone's uh, financial life looks like, but being able to have discussions about the, the topic of money management and personal finance and saving for the future so that it becomes a normative a part of your daily life to say, you know, I wanted to get as much out of that retirement uh, plan I could get for my employer. I wanted to take uh, take great value in that. And I know you work, you know, your whole career has been a helping uh, people think through that. And there's so many folks that are in, in the moderate income levels who still are ashamed because they don't know much. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't talk about it, then we don't have to admit we don't know. So we at NEFI are trying to, to demystify the topic and help empower people to understand the topic, to ask questions, that questions are healthy, mm-hmm. that advocating for yourself and money is healthy, and shedding light on the things that could potentially be obstacles to their financial pathway. So, you know, in thinking about that, right, the, the best place to start getting Americans to learn about this is in schools. That's the, that's the captive audience, you know, getting to schools, getting to kids, having, getting, reaching the masses. You know, ultimately you want parents to have this discussion with their, with their children because if it's seen as something that you can broach at home, then it feels normal to have, a, have this topic covered in school. Um, and, you know, the number one place that people learn about money is through their parents. Whether those are good lessons or bad lessons, <laughs> that's the number one place. The number two place, scarily, is peers. And so you think about yourself at 13 or 14. You know, I think about myself at 13 or 14, and we're learning from our peers about money. Uh, but the number three is is educators, teachers. And, and that's from a study that we have funded, uh, a longitudinal study over many years, uh, where we followed the freshman class at the University of Arizona from 2007, and we've continued to follow them. And that's how we, you know, that's where those data came from. But, but looking at that and being able to say, you know, helping empower parents to, to bring this topic up, and as a society, embracing the idea that saving and planning and managing debt and those things are important, uh, or eliminating as much debt as possible early on, um, but learning about it in a structured way that it is democratized so that low-income students have as much access to learning about money management as high-income students mm-hmm. do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, what's interesting to me in hearing this is I deal with the high net worth space, mm-hmm. and they're no better at it. Sure. than anybody else in the American landscape. Yes. Uh, oftentimes, the, their solution is to have their child speak with me, yes. which is which is great, and it's very one-on-one, and it, it does work. However, it's not really solving the general crisis. Right. 
But one of the things I found interesting in learning about you and your career is you've you've come out fairly recently with CNBC talking about there is a political aspect to financial education that most of us don't even realize. I mean, I really thought that every state and every governor and every senator and representative would want us to be getting financial education. Yes. Well, uh, and a lot of them do want you to get it at the cost of other things. (laughs) That's where it's becoming political. And I saw this trend starting to emerge a few years ago, and and some may argue that this, this has always been present. But in large part, at the federal level, one thing that we've seen change is uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, had spent many years in regulation and enforcement, uh, the, the early years, and have defunded that and de-emphasized that as a priority and put money into financial education. And the takeaway of that being, well, we don't need to regulate financial services or a large investment practices or banking because we'll just teach people and they'll do better. They will avoid bad products because they will know better. And we know that that doesn't work. Otherwise, we would all be fit and thin. You know, we know we shouldn't <laughs> exactly. eat French fries every day. Uh, but I love me some French fries. You know, I, but I have to be able to understand that and manage that and think through this. And and that's where people have started to uh, really look at the look at the politicization of this. And I'm seeing it at the state level where well-meaning state legislators are adding personal finance as a graduation requirement or as a required to offer all students, which I think is a great um, a great opportunity for every student in that state. If, if it's a highly uh, well-designed, thoughtfully designed uh, mandate that included teachers in the process that looks at developmentally appropriate things at each age level, uh, you know, but just ha- throwing on a mandate just to say, and it doesn't get funding or the teachers don't get the necessary training, mm-hmm. uh, then it may do more harm than good. And what we saw happen in North Carolina is that there was a, a an education bill, and at the last minute they tacked on financial education with no input from educators. And mm-hmm. I'm a former classroom teacher and a former college professor myself, <laughs> you know, that's not a good, healthy way to do this. So if you add on a state mandate like North Carolina has, and it's a fine mandate, but if you add on a state mandate that hasn't been thoughtfully vetted, educators haven't bought into this, it hasn't gone through the necessary process for creating effective state policy when it comes to what students should learn and know, then you may cause more harm than good. And what actually happened in North Carolina? Did they get this they bill passed? They did pass. They did pass the bill. The governor did sign it, uh, but it passed with only maybe one or two Democrats supporting it. And, you know, I think of helping educate people to be able to make the best financial decisions possible is is bipartisan. It should be bipartisan. And we should all think that's a good idea. But where it's becoming partisan is when it's it's taking the place of regulation or it's taking the place of access to high quality, uh, safe products uh, instead of being a part of the aggregated ideal of what it takes to create financial well-being, which is financial education and good products and consumer protections and thoughtful smart regulation, not regulation for the sake of regulation. And when you add those things together, then you create a pathway of financial well-being and financial capability that can best serve the American family. But when you only address one of those issues, and when you address one of those issues at the state level for young people to learn about the topic without including educators, Mm -hmm. then it's going to become the idea of the person who proposed the legislation, and then it doesn't become something that helps students. It becomes a win for the Democrats or the Republicans. You know, in in talking about this, what's what it also sounds like is it's the standard American drama of state and local politicians who are sort of battling out on the ground. But then if you look at the federal sort of mandates on this. If you look at the presidential commitments of the last three administrations, you look at some of the senators who are for financial literacy. It seems on the federal level, 
they are far more united in yes. what it should be. And it, it, it's sort of interesting that there's such friction there, but then that is the story of America. Right, right. And it is fascinating to see how many um, congressional uh, representatives are looking at uh, financial literacy as a as a means to an end, you know, helping the average consumer, helping young people, helping families learn as much as they can about this topic. And I frame it from the point of view that we want to help people get the most out of every dollar they have. And how does that, what does that mean? How do you navigate the landscape as it exists? Where it becomes more more partisan is when people start to shed light on the obstacles, which they should, but then they use education as a Band-Aid instead of having policy solutions that remove the barriers uh, to, su- to success and to participation and saying, um, you know, if there are no consumer protections, well, we don't need consumer protections. This is the mentality. We don't need consumer protections. We just teach people and they won't do those, those bad things or they won't fall for those scams. And we see this every day. You know, FINRA, the, the, the financial um, regulators that's looking at what's happening with fraud, with uh, elder abuse, for example. So we need protections and we need education equally. And um, my fear is that at the federal level, because so many other things are partisan now, that this will become partisan and it will become a regulation versus deregulation argument and education will be seen as the Band-Aid instead of part of the broader solution. It's interesting because one of the uh, candidates for president is Elizabeth Warren. And regardless of how you feel about her politically, she comes from a financial educator background. Yes. Do you think the idea of of someone coming into the presidential office who is a financial educator, could that have a, a dif- make a difference? Or because she's been in the Senate for so long, we've already felt that imprint? Well, you know, people credit her with the uh, architecture of the CFPB. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're a fan of the CFPB or not, uh, it has actually a pretty broad um, mandate to do financial education, to protect older Americans, to help protect service members from financial fraud, as well as to do some enforcement. Uh, so, you know, depending on the ideological background of whoever's president, some of those things get emphasized more than the others, whereas deregulation is emphasized by one party uh, and education is is grown. The other side may be enforcement is more needed and because the, the landscape is too complicated for the average American to navigate. I don't think either of those is true. I think the answer is between. It's it's a mix of that depending on the individual. And but Elizabeth Warren specifically, I think, is interested in this topic. But, you know, President Obama and President George W. Bush were both interested in this topic. They formed president's councils on this topic where they brought together people from industry, from nonprofit, from from education and and looked at how do we help the average American uh, become more financially literate and, and increase their financial capability. So. I've seen this at the federal level since I've been at NEFI from from two points of view politically. And it's possible to see that in having a president who's very interested in the empowerment of the individual, but also interested in helping people navigate the system or maybe improving the financial landscape for the average American. I think that could help all of us uh, if we could kind of put aside uh, our camp hats and think through how do we best – Uh, serve the American family. Completely agree. We have less than one minute to our commercial break. So just give me in the next 60 seconds, what states are doing it right? Utah is doing a wonderful job at this. Uh, Tennessee is making great headwind into this. Um, And my home state of Kentucky just passed a really good mandate and that goes into effect in 2020. So I'm very excited to see all the kids, my my friend's children grow up with access to something we didn't have access to in in Kentucky. What's interesting is you don't mention any of the states on the coasts. And I would have expected you to say California or New York or New Jersey. So it's interesting that it's coming from the middle of the country. Yes. And it's because I think in large part, that's probably coming from the ground up. Local advocates, grassroots saying we need to do better by our students. Okay. And on that note, we're going to pause right back, pause here, and we'll be right back in a few moments with Dr. Billy Hensley. 
future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to The Wealth Intersection with Megan Gorman. If you have a question or comment about the program, your money, or what it can do for you, please send an email to Megan at TheWealthIntersection.com. That's M-E-G-A-N at TheWealthIntersection.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Wealth Intersection. We've been chatting with Dr. Billy Hensley of NEFI on the issues regarding financial literacy and wealth in America. So, Billy, when we we just went to commercial break, we were talking about the states that do it right. But you were also saying earlier that any legislation for financial education needs to be thoughtful. And when you said that, it brought me back to an interview I did a while ago with um, the actor and financial activist Hill Harper, who appears on The Good Wife. And uh, Hill is of African-American descent, and he said something to me that always stuck with me. He said, when America catches a cold... Black folks get pneumonia. Mm. And I think when we start to look at financial literacy and education in this country, when you talk about it being thoughtful, how, how do you address some of the issues that are inherent in the system? And I know this is a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of foundational factors that need to be addressed for people before things like financial capability, uh, financial before you're able to apply what you know and, and to be able to achieve sort of the ultimate level of financial well-being. We think people at all income levels achieve financial well-being, but those foundational factors like having access to quality jobs, having um, having their educational needs met, uh, the, having social, social support systems in place that enable upward mobility. And I agree with that. And I would say Black folks catch pneumonia and hillbillies where I grew up also mm-hmm. catch pneumonia because yep. when you're tied to uh, industries where you're making things, where it's already poor, mm-hmm. um, when there's any constriction, it usually constricts, but it doesn't grow back. So it continues to shrink, shrink, shrink. Um, and if we're not addressing these issues of um, being able to have a career pathway and a career ladder to move up, mm-hmm. You can learn all you want to learn about money management, but if you can't apply it, if you don't have access to a job, if the factory in your town closed, um, you know, and like where I grew up, it's hard to move away because who's going to buy your house? Who and, and are you going to get enough to even make a down payment on something in the, in the city or get a job at, at another industry? How are you going to be trained? There's a lot of issues that prohibit folks from being able to move upward. And when you have multiple generations working in an industry that's slowly dying, Mm -hmm. whether that's certain kinds of manufacturing, you know, sort of the the put-together things type manufacturing, or whether that be some sort of natural resources industry, or whether that be uh, some level of farming where machines are taking the place of of, of people, you know, looking at, you know, what does that actually mean? And and that's the criticism that sometimes people make of financial education and financial educators is that, 
you know, just learning about money isn't going to help you. And and that's the stance we've taken in EFI that it's not just about learning these things. It's about understanding the landscape within which they exist and understanding what happens uh, in rural communities or for African-Americans or even, I mean, we, women still make 80 cents to the dollar. If you're, if you're wanting uh, a strong economy, you can teach, and a lot of people are, are working toward helping shrink that, that gender pay gap through things like financial literacy as well as fairness initiatives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that may take policy uh, and legislation. Sometimes it's just good old-fashioned education to learn about leveraging and negotiating and not perpetuating low pay. You know, And, and there are practices and skills that employers are hopefully incorporating to sort of offset that. But we want to shed light that what we do at NEFI with education and research and some of the things we do in the space, that that is not the silver bullet, that that is part of the solution. It's it's a step of many that needs to happen. Um, and for certain populations, uh, low-income families, for example, those foundational factors, getting those basic needs met is a huge piece of, of achieving financial well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the basic skills that we often overlook when we talk about financial education are things like filing your taxes on time. Yes. Um, you know, making sure your credit score is functional. Um, you know, I have, there's a great program, as you know, called VITA, Voluntary Income Tax Assistance. And a lot of times when you're working with people in those programs, you have to explain to them it's okay to file a tax return because the tax code in that part of the, the brackets is made for you. Yes. There are credits and you will likely get money back, but there is a lack of education right. and a fear of yes. filing taxes. Right. And there, there's a fear for a lot of low income people. There's a fear of banking. You know, they've had a bad experience. They don't have access to small dollar loans, which is why they go to the people who will make loans to them. But at these exorbitant fees. Mm-hmm. Huge interest rates. So helping people understand every element of what's available to them and and, and, and the resources available to them. Uh, but again, you can you can be a middle class family or an upper middle class family and still live check to check because you're not understanding things, or it's just really expensive where you live, and it's always going to be expensive where you live. And one broken arm or a couple of flat tires, that's enough to put you behind. And it's not respecter of income level. And we've seen that with research that we've funded, that it, you know, your, your financial fragility, the percentage of people who are financially fragile shrinks as your income goes up, but it does not go away by any means. People that are in the seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year income bracket, and that's across the country. So in middle America, that's a really good salary. Um, you put that in and you still see that around 20% of them are, are financially fragile, meaning they could not come up with a deductible or a $400 immediate emergency because they just didn't have it. And that doesn't mean they had $400 in cash in their wallet. That means they didn't have the room on a credit card right. even, or they didn't have a place to borrow it from family or friends. So if you see that, and, and that's 20% who didn't, and several those who did have the money probably did put it on a credit card and rolled it over. So we are a very fragile financial country, and it is it is worse for certain demographics. Uh, but it it is it is a difficult financial um, landscape for most people. Yeah, no, it's it's true. And and one of the things I have found interesting in writing in the space is when you write about financial fragility. Right, mm-hmm. people don't want to read those articles. Yeah, if you write about what the wealthy are doing, everybody wants to read those articles. Mm-hmm. Right. But the idea of actually confronting being fragile yeah. is so worrisome. And and I think one of the, the themes that has come into the personal finance debate for better or for worse is when we talk about millennials and trying to get them to have a cash reserve. What do we talk about? Don't buy that latte. Yes. Don't order the avocado toast. And is that the right messaging in getting people to the right financial <laughs> behaviors? No way. <laughs> <laughs> No way. It, it, there's so much judgment in that. And, every, you know, every time we, you know, you'll post an article, you'll read a personal finance article. There's always people who talk about how simple it is. And the, the financial landscape that within which most Americans live is not simple. 
you know, yeah, those fundamentals are simple. Spend less than you earn. I get that. But when you are living in an expensive place and you have health care costs and you have child care costs, which are exorbitant, it's, you know, you think about I buy my first house and my, my house payment is $1,800 a month and oh, then I have twins and right. then my weekly child care costs drop, jump to $600 a week. So when you think about that and what the, the strain that that puts on people, and, and I get the aspirational side of it. You want to learn what people do. But, but sometimes we just need to be able to say that you cannot tip your way out of poverty. You can save money. You can find ways to extend the life of that dollar. And we all aspire to that. But looking at the fundamentals of what, what has caused um, it to be so difficult for the average American family financially, that's a more complicated problem. It is. It is. It really is. So, so that sort of gets me interested in, let's talk about you for a little bit, right? Okay. You are from Kentucky. You're from that area in Kentucky and Ohio where people do have a lot, a lot of different financial challenges than the people in Denver where we're sitting today. Yes. So, so tell me, how did you start, start learning about money? Well, I, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't, my parents didn't overtly discuss money because it was a stressful topic for them. And I, I told my mom one day, I trusted her working here, I said, why did we not talk about money? She said, because that was a stress for us and we didn't want to put that on you kids. Mm. It was a stressful topic, always. Oh, you know, that's so you painful to it hear. Is, it is. And a lot of the people I grew up with, you just didn't talk about money growing up. You may hear think people talk about saving or not trusting and, and um, uh, you know, how evil credit cards were. Right. And it's because people had bad experiences with those things and how, you know, when you went to buy a car or you, you went to borrow money, you just, you took what they gave you because they knew best. That was the bank. Right. You know, it's the same when you go to the doctor. Uh, you, you, you're not empowered to say, to ask for more information, to ask for clarity when you don't understand. Um, and, and I saw that play out in healthcare. I saw that play out in banking. I saw it play out in a lot of ways. And, you know, uh, and, and I'm not picking on uh, small town banks because they are they better serve their customers, I think, than large banks do because yes. they know their customers yes, well. Yes, I would agree. Uh, but but just that that relationship with money is stressful, so it becomes something you avoid, and you don't want to put that on your children. It's a burden to your children, and so you 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 learn by watching. You know, you learn by um, hearing the the stress that's associated with money and bills and managing bills and and when I was a kid, especially in the early '80s, uh, you know, my dad worked for a coal company and. You know, there'd be like six months where you'd, you'd work tons of overtime, you'd make great money, and then you'd have three months where you were laid off. It was just a constant up and down, constant wow. up and down, and that experience uh, of what that looked like. Um, but my grandparents were really the ones that talked about, and I think it's just their generation, they talked about, um, you know, saving for things. And, and that's where I started learning those lessons about what how important budgeting was and how, how you know, I, I don't know if the needs versus wants language is appropriate anymore, but that's where you learn about feeling those fundamental needs. Uh, and then you have the opportunity for the ones, you know, in my family, we always, I, I'm a car person. I, I love cars. I always have, uh, I don't, I never have a car more than four or five years old. It's just my thing, but that's how I fulfill that. That's sort of that, that part of that, but you know, I give it up in other ways. And, and I looked at, to try to provide balance in that. And there wasn't a true discussion about how do you balance needs and wants and how do you do that. So I went from my grandparents' generation that was only about needs to my parents' generation who just completely, you know, the economy was changing so fast for them in that area. They couldn't survive the way their parents did with the same kind of jobs. And they just, you know, they went, they, they were trying to manage that. And then to my generation, we had no clue. And when we were in college, people were begging us to take their credit cards. Right. So most of us graduated from college with credit card debt. And it was just that same cycle. It was just that it just kept building and building. And, and so structurally, you know, I'm trying to take that apart for, for young people now through my work at NEFI. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sad to think about that and how much my, my parents struggled financially and still do to some extent because of that. Yeah. No, it's it's funny that you bring it up because, I mean, we're both Gen Xers. Mm-hmm. And 
And uh, in college, I got there and signed up for every credit card under the sun because that's what I thought a sophisticated person did with yeah. money. Yeah. And clearly, you know, I ended up getting in trouble with it. And I think it's, you know, I find in, in, in talking about personal finance, you know, for me, personal finance is a mix of the highs and the lows and yeah. trying to have more highs than lows. And I do think yeah. it's important when we actually talk about the mistakes we make. Yes. But that also, you know, leads me to Gen X, right? We live in a world, and you and I have talked about this before, we live in a world that it's the boomers and the millennials, yeah. right? And we're sort of sandwiched in between, and we're sort of the, 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 the kid that nobody pays attention to. Yeah. How are we doing generationally <laughs> here? Are, are we okay? <laughs> uh, well, on paper, you know, we have issues. We're struggling on certain things. Uh, but I think part of that is because we're at the place now where – um, you know, we're paying college tuition and we're doing the things that, you know, that, that to sort of that uh, make it tight, you know, make it uh, from check to check, so to speak. But the um, the grit of our generation, the make it on your own of our generation is what's going to cause us to be ultimately successful. And, you know, you, you look uh, and I've, I've started seeing these memes in social media just very recently because we're so like, don't pay attention to us. Don't look at us right. that we don't even have memes. But I've seen a couple <laughs> lately. And, and it's like, you know, it's an image of a millennial person screaming and a boomer screaming. And then the, the Gen Xers off in the corner just sipping a martini watching the show. Right. And, and that's sort of really an epitome epitome of our of our life uh, and I think in a way financially it's that way like we started off because we didn't know what was happening but because we were such an independent generation you know the latchkey generation the uh, oh yeah by the way mom I have a band concert tonight generation um, and they may or may not have even attended we, right. we didn't care we probably didn't want them to right to, to exactly attend. <laughs> uh, and so w- when you think about that that gives us that drive because as a generation we really do seek out answers, we experiment, we try things, uh, and we, we figure out what works best for us. And it's our generation, which is fascinating, that's starting to emerge as the voice of this movement really? of personal finance and financial literacy. And we have changed the way we talk about this topic. We, instead of it being a, a you know, financial education will solve all, or we're defensive about the impact that we are or are not having, we're actually shedding light on the issues that cause financial education to not be as effective. And we're okay with that. And we're shedding light on that. And um, a lady, her name's Rebecca Wick, and she runs the Association for Financial Counseling and Planning. Mm-hmm. They do the AFC certifications and all that. She's also a Gen Xer, and she started calling out the role of that financial planning plays in the racial wealth gap, right. which is incredibly brave to come out and say that. And it's our generation who are shedding light and trying to shed more light on the structural inequalities that are present in the in our daily financial life. Now we are we've known about the racial wealth gap and we've known about those things, but we are as a generation engaging these topics to be how do we help eat away at that problem? How do we how do we begin to chip away at that problem? from the financial education point of view, from the financial planning point of view, from the financial counseling and coaching point of view. And Gen Xers are taking over all these organizations because boomers are retiring. Boomers built the organizations, built the content, built the platform. And we are now bringing a level of fairness, I think, to the topic and shedding light on the structural issues like the foundational factors that, that make it hard for people to overcome levels of poverty to say, you know, it's 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 difficult to navigate this landscape. There are boulders in the way. We want education wants to help you navigate that. But as a generation, I think we are we are emerging as shedding light on that and saying that we're not we're not making excuses. We're saying if we understand it, then we can overcome it. No, I think that that's a really important point. And I think the difference is as we talk about it, I don't think we're asking for accolades, right? We're doing no. it the very Gen X. Yeah. You know, to, to look over there, yes. not over here. Yes. But, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder the, the stresses that Gen X is under today. I mean, I have mm. friends, and I'm sure you do too, that are struggling to pay these fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year tuitions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I sort of wonder is, at a certain point, how much responsibility is it of the generation, the parents, 
to take care of kids. Yeah. Or if you're getting your kids financial literacy early on, right. can you? is that a better way to help them make better financial decisions about college? Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to what I said at the beginning of the episode. If we start to norm this language, if we demystify this topic, if we make it as accessible as possible, you know, for simple things like, you know, when you start your first job, maximizing every benefit because your 24-year-old self, uh, you know, yeah, you may lose 100 bucks of spending money a month, but that $100 a month is going to turn into thousands and thousands of dollars at a time when you're tired and you can't, you know, you're, you can't continue to work or if you get hurt or whatever, whatever that means for you, letting that just become a shared normative value for every American worker. Mm-hmm. Take advantage of that. And if you work at a place that doesn't have advantage of that, then we need to be lobbying for resources and tools to help people continue to build wealth if they work for a firm that doesn't have a match or doesn't have a 401k or a 403b plan to, to understand a Roth and what does that actually mean. And I would I would garner a very small percentage of people in their early 20s even know what that means or know what an, a Roth is. And helping people learn what that is and talk about how do you set it up and how do you advocate for this mm-hmm. at your workplace and how to, you know, empowering people to do that because that is uh, helping eat the elephant one bite at a time. It's not, we're not going to solve it. You're not going to take a class and then get rich, but it's one bite at a time. Each of these decisions you make, whether that's the day-to-day money management cash flow of your life or your financial budget of your home, or whether that's how do I get to a million dollars when I retire? So, so that sort of leads us back, back to education in the classroom. Yes. So just give me an understanding. If I'm, if I'm sending my child to middle school, what should I expect my child to walk away with? Is it ability to articulate what financially they want to do, or is it actual skills? Because what are the best programs doing? Uh, well, it's a mix of those. Um, you know, we provide a program for teens and have for many, many years at NEFI, and we've had it evaluated externally by researchers. And what sets us apart Mm-hmm. And we don't view other programs as competitors because we're all trying to elevate the common good here. Uh, and ours is free, so we don't technically have a competitor if you're giving away what you do. But what sets us apart on on these evaluations is that it's competency-based. It's not about memorizing facts. It's not about understanding the rule of 72. It's not about those things. It's about what is your plan? What is your plan to get there? What is your plan for um, uh, for your budget? What is your plan for credit? What is your plan for transportation? What is your plan for housing? And our program for teens is built on that competency-based principle that it's applied. The test isn't what can you regurgitate after this 10-question multiple-choice quiz, right. uh, as, a, as a staff member here calls it multiple guess. It is put together a portfolio, a plan, it's like what you want someone to do in their 40s when they're thinking about, oh, I need to catch up here. Right. You want someone who's 16 to understand that. Now, you're not going to dig into the complexities of which mutual fund to choose, but you're going to you're understanding the connection between decisions um, and, and a short-term and a long-term mm-hmm. uh, and what those look like. And thinking about it from the point of view of, hey, you know, you're going to live in San Diego and you're going to, are you going to rent or buy? And what does that actually look like? And that gives people the opportunity to see that. Mm-hmm. What's the right data plan? And what does that look like on your budget? How do you uh, cover uh, the limo for your prom? Right. You know, it's these applied concepts of, of, of everyday decision making. And then when you build that foundation, and, and then as people become more confident in the ability to apply that, then when, the, when those big decisions come down the road, like buying a house, uh, starting a new job, having a family, then you then you go to someone like you to get more information right. and say, how do I navigate this? Or at least you know how to sort through the noise right. on the Internet. Right. I mean, to some degree, you're making them financially resilient. Yes. And that might be the ultimate goal for all of us is, yes. you know, whatever happens, you feel resilient regardless of where the markets are. Right. So we have about three minutes left. And so I wanted to just sort of touch base on three last quick questions mm-hmm. that I'm asking all of our guests. Um, and I think the first question 
is, you know, what does wealth mean to you? We use that term a lot. So what, what does wealth mean mm. to you? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's security, uh, happiness, uh, being able to have adventures. You know, that's what it means to me. Yeah. And maybe that's because of how I grew up. But it's, it's about, in some ways, transactions, but it's mostly about, about security. Excellent. And what's the best piece of financial advice you've ever received? Don't spend what you don't have. I love it. I love it. I'm thinking about how you started out and learned about money. Has your early money story helped you? It has. I mean, it, it's helped me uh, to dig into the why, mm. the why of money and the why we make decisions we do. Uh, and I'm a why person. I was a why kid. You know, dad used to pay me. <laughs> he would used to offer me a dollar if I would just be quiet for 10 minutes. I will... I'm proud to say I never earned that dollar because he didn't understand the opportunity cost of that and he should have offered me more. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Billy, I want to thank you again for being on the show. My guest this hour has been Dr. Billy Hensley. Billy, where can listeners learn more about Nefi's work and financial education? Yeah, nefi.org, N-E-F-E.org. Excellent. Well, anyway, we look forward to you joining us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Business Channel. In the meantime, feel free to reach out on Twitter at Wealth Intersect or on Instagram, The Wealth Intersection, or email me at Megan at TheWealthIntersection.com. Until then, take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Wealth Intersection. Megan Gorman will be back with another program next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. 